I found it very difficult. People, people have asked me, what's the elevator pitch uh, for the book? Which is really, really, really hard when you're, when you're uh, trying to cover um, lots of disparate questions or whatever. But um, I guess the best way of putting it is, what, what, did the, what did the future look like before it got cancelled? So it's trying to do a few things. Uh, and it, it focuses mainly on the, 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 the late 60s and early 70s the period before and, I guess, into the oil crisis and other times of political crisis. And it's interesting because Owen's book is very much against a kind of nostalgia and a very specific kind of British nostalgia. But there's another kind of nostalgia which actually Last Futures is reeling against as well, which you might call jetpack nostalgia which is this idea that uh, people who look back at the, at the 60s and 70s and, the, and they see that we were promised, apparently we were promised certain things, and the jetpack is always the, the, the classic um, image of this, this idea that there were gadgets and, 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 and aspects of the future that, were, that we were expecting to have, and we haven't got them, uh, and this is some, some kind of loss. Now, the problem with that is that it ends up in this almost, that pretty whimsical... Uh, attitude to a certain period of architecture and, and, and design where um, the kind of zany aesthetics of like walking cities and, and a certain goofiness uh, is celebrated as, as you know look at this period weren't they silly and weren't they mad and weren't they naive and optimistic when actually you know it's a period of a lot of struggles and there are lots of you know far more interesting aspects of it than the silliest ideas and what ends up happening is that the, the word utopia gets bandied about all the time about this period. Um, and it's really difficult because it basically means that the, it's, it's the idea that any political program that involved a change in spatial relationships or, or the way cities were arranged is somehow, uh, we now think of it as necessarily utopian. And when you call something utopian now, you put it in a box and mm-hmm. you say it's, it's a silly thing that, mm-hmm. that, that was impossible, never going to happen, and we don't need to think about it. Mm-hmm. It's not a question we need to bother with. But when you look at the 1960s and 70s in architecture, what, one thing that stands out is that across the board, the level of ambition that people had, um, whether it's the designers themselves, whether it's the clients, the state, usually state-based clients who are commissioning them, the institutions that, you know, are using the buildings and so on. Um, and this ambition is partly due to the end of the war. Uh, cities across um, Europe especially were, were damaged greatly, and so there's a, a massive rebuilding programme having to happen. Uh, but it's also part of the Cold War struggle, also partly from an experience of rapid uh, economic, technological, and, and, and I guess cultural and, and social development. Um, and so there's so much happening there that isn't necessarily utopian. It's merely very ambitious and it's an ambition that cannot hold through the 70s and is defeated I would say uh, by the 1980s and the rise of what in architecture we think of as postmodern aesthetics and so on and, and, and the politics thereof and if it does return if a, an attitude towards the future does return in architecture and urbanism it comes back in a debased kind of um, weakened and pretty superficial form now. So any kind of futurism we see in architecture now is usually bereft of any genuine attitude of transformation or so on. Do you mean it's bereft of a kind of social and political attitude of transformation or, or just physical? Uh, the things are intertwined, I would say. I, I try and look at that by, in the book by going through a large swathe of, of architecture that's not always tied together. Um, so I do look at some of the more extreme proposals like the space colonies or the, or the endless monuments and things like that. But I also look at things like system building, mm-hmm. uh, which are normally considered too humdrum and, and, and boring and depressing to look at. And, and I think that tying all this together uh, with the rise, the first wave of kind of ecological consciousness, which swells and then dissipates and in a kind of really slightly tragic and ironic way, considering what we now face. And there's definitely, and also with uh, attitudes to technology as well, and how technology would change architecture and how people lived, and now technology is racing away from us, and yet spatial 
relationships don't change, housing is as it was. Every, the ambition seems to have, have been completely lost. And so I effectively what I'm trying to do is look at a period a couple of generations ago whose problems were, all, were very, very similar to those mm-hmm. today and then seeing if in a refracted way that can give us uh, a better way of looking at the problems we now face. There's, there's um, quite a lot in what you said there that, that I would pick up on. I mean, it seems that some of the visions that you talk about in the book, as you say, they're put in the utopia box or they're kind of treated as failures. Um, what do you think of the sort of terms of the failure, the fact that they weren't able to be realised? Or Well, I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the tasks is to sift. And I think that um, a good example for this would, is... is um, are uh, Archigram, who... What's in, what I, fi- I find interesting about them is that some of their ideas are ridiculously stupid and naive and, 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 and you know, um, very bad. But some of them are extremely prescient, and, and it's important to do that sifting um, of, of what was, you know, literally, like, only five years away in some cases. Mm-hmm. And unless you look closely... Sometimes you don't notice that. It all looks ridiculous. When in some cases, there were big changes happening that were defeated by you know, economic and <coughs> crisis and cultural reaction. As but well. that the ideas behind them are probably still with us. I think there are underlying ideas that, that don't change, uh, relating to, or well, not that don't change, but since the Industrial Revolution have been plaguing modern, modern society about how technology affects day-to-day life, and that's going to be one of the big issues from for the next few generations at least. <laughs> yeah, I mean as you were, as you were talking about the things that we were promised that we never received hoverboards and um jetpacks and so on. I was just thinking what is it that we're promising today? Like Well, it's it? a world without work, isn't it? <laughs> and of course, in back then, like the, the the big cliche back then and it comes up again and again when you're doing the research, but it, it's in the book a lot is Everyone's, everyone's obsessed with leisure time at that, uh, in the 60s and 70s. They're obsessed with, with all this technological advance, what are we going to do with all this free time when robots make, make us this kind of leisured class? And the answers at the time were? Have orgies and parties and things? Um, well, it's actually quite... It's the same... It's, you know that, 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 that um, work during the day and philosophize in the evening? I forget the... the, the but it always tends to be that people the, almost the most utopian thing you get in that again and again is, is people go oh well maybe we wouldn't work so hard and we'd have more time for you know culture and being nice to each other and, and relaxing like it's not very complicated <laughs> in the end what people desperately desire but you know. so we're still promising that well, now it seems that everyone's going to be unemployed and exactly. um, drowned. It's no but, work um... in a different way. <laughs> Sorry, we shouldn't laugh. We're on an island. <laughs> okay, um, a laugh is a good point to kind of use the next book and to think about um, not looking forward from the past but actually looking back from the present day, which um, seems to be the, the sort of red thread that moves through the thread book that Owen's written, and you actually have some visuals done some, done some work to... Um, so this book is, I guess, about a sort of variant of the nostalgia for the future genre, and it's also a bit of a sort of argument with my own nostalgia for a particular version of the future. I don't know how familiar people are with Hancock's Half Hour. I hope you all are. Um, there's, there's an episode of Hancock's Half Hour where... Um, Tony Hancock in his house in Railway Cuttings in East Cheam um, keeps finding these letters addressed to him saying what, what a bastard he is and how he's wrong about everything and an idiot and a crap actor and a talentless and foolish. And he says, who's, send, who's sending me these letters? Who's sending me these letters? And gradually, as the, as, as the half an hour goes on, he realises that he, uh, in the evening while sleepwalking, has written these letters to himself, um, denouncing him and all that he believes in. And the process of writing this book was a little bit like that. Um, so it's, lots of it is about sort of particular kind of uh, products created by a benevolent bureaucracy in the middle of the century, roughly from about 1930 to about 1970, and their afterlife since the financial crash, so since about 2009. Um, and the most obvious one of these is the Keep, Come and Carry On poster, 
I, I first wrote about this in a, in a long essay in Radical Philosophy in about 2009, and then kind of thought for about a year I'd write a book about it at one point, and then I thought, now it's going to go away. Like, like all memes, this will disappear. And bizarrely, it hasn't. It's just, instead it spreads horrendously, and it just shows no sign whatsoever of going away or dying, so this is sort of an attempt to make it die. Um, <laughs> the, um, the, the, the most obvious thing to say about this poster is that it's a, a sort of example of a kind of historical false memory syndrome. And, and, and really, the, what I'm going to do is kind of use four examples of this, of, of this poster as a way of kind of summing up many of the arguments in the book, of which only the first 20 pages or so is actually about the poster. Um, so this is the poster that was actually produced. Um, the Ministry of Information in 1939 came up with three posters in the event of uh, German saturation bombing, which they thought would basically lead to people panicking and the cities depleting and complete chaos. If you've ever seen the film of H.G. Wells' Things to Come, that's a very good vision of like what, what, what the Ministry of Information and the government were expecting. Um, so one was Freedom is in Peril, Defend it with All Your Might. That got produced. One is Keep Come and Carry On, it was, which was not produced. And the third, which was produced en masse, is Your Courage, Your Cheerfulness, Your Resolution Will Bring Us Victory. So produced by the Ministry of Information in 1939, which um, in its early existence was run by Frank Pick, who had been the managing director of the London Underground and responsible for its, its aesthetics, so its posters, its architecture, which had been enormously and quite rightly celebrated. It also been, had a similar role in a thing called the Empire Marketing Board, which everyone has forgotten about, um, which was about trying to promote the virtues of the empire and its trade networks and the wonderful things it was doing for the people of the, East End, of the West Indies. So um, this poster really, really, really irritated people. Um, in a book called Living Through the Blitz by Tom Harrison, who was one of the uh, organisers of mass observation, um, the organisation which... Um, sort of an early kind of left-leaning form of market research, I guess you could say. Um, in the 1980s, published a kind of summation of all of their research on the Blitz. And one of the things that they, that they found was that these posters really, really, really wound people up. And the thing that wound them up most was your and us in this poster. You, the worker, through your courage, cheerfulness, and resolution, will bring us, Anthony Eden, and, you know, so forth, victory. Much of the... Um, Anthony Burgess, in his book, 1985, on, on, the, on the 40s and on austerity... Um, argues that these posters actually contributed to the, the Labour victory in 1945, to the scale of the landslide. So nowadays we see these things all, as all being rather similar, as being, you know, um, the aesthetics of the London Underground, the Ministry of Information, um, the new Labour government, the Blitz. Actually, there were quite a lot of differences in this. But the Keep, Come and Carry On poster itself never actually made it to production. I think largely because of, I, I suspect because of the irritation that the other posters in that, in that series had, had provoked. Then it, it sort of goes, it goes viral in around 2009, and then that virus becomes more and more malignant. And it provides this, this sort of performative image of benevolence um, and, and a performative image of statism in, in, a, in a context that's, that's, that's really very different. And this one, which I saw on Trafalgar Road in Greenwich about, uh, about a year ago, um, I thought really, really summed that up. Um, pay bills and carry on. This is for pay points, so if you've got a key meter in your, in, in your flat, as, as, as I have, this is how you pay your gas and electric bill. What I thought was extraordinary about this was the image of, of a benevolent bureaucracy being used by the privatised utilities. Um, you know, you're, the, the money you're paying rather than going to, you know, um, a nationalised water company or a nationalised gas company, as had been envisaged and built in the 1940s, was actually going to, um, you know, a, a, a privatised company that's largely probably owned by a hedge fund in New Zealand or Canada or a, a pension fund in France. Um, the, the, the gap between these two things becomes in, increasingly yawning. This one which I found really, really early on. Um, I found this in, uh, in 2009 um, in uh, the 
newspaper given out free by the London Borough of Greenwich, Greenwich Time, which after Greenwich became a royal borough for the Olympics, became Royal Greenwich Time. Um, and Greenwich Time, you know, among, like, like the usual kind of town hall crafters, as, as they're known, um, has sort of one half about all the great things happening in Greenwich, and then it has some listings of, increasingly depleting listings of social housing, and then adverts like this. This was a new labour scheme called Community Payback, um, where basically, you know, offenders are given sort of orange vests and go around, like, cleaning up council estates, basically. The idea being this kind of visible punishment, um, this, the, 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 you know, that you would consume this, this, this punishment. I suppose it something you would, you, would, you would watch, that you would kind of, that people were sort of publicly humiliated. And, and again, you have this sort of strange thing of the kind of aesthetic originally associated, I guess, with something like the Beveridge Report, um, predicated as it was on eliminating things like, you know, humiliating things like means testing and so on, and the very punitive nature of the pre-1945 welfare state that, that instead appeals to the enjoyment of, 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 of humiliation. This, uh, this is a major new Labour thing, and I think part of the book was an, argu- was an argument about the sort, of, the sort of Tory version of austerity, uh, which, in which Cameron, like most Tory leaders since Thatcher, um, appeals to a certain blitz spirit. But a lot of it is also an argument with aspects of the left, particularly uh, the, I hope, soon-to-be-forgotten movement known as Blue Labour, which essentially kind of creates this, this thing called the white working class, which is um, a bit stupid and racist but, and you know, obsessed with the war, much as we would like to be cosmopolitan, because these people think this, we have to be racist in order to appeal to them and not lose our core vote. I've been going, along for, going around for a while. And they seemed very much to, to, to appeal to this particular, to this particular image, this, uh, sort of 1940 and 1945. What I found a, a slightly depressing, I guess, in some of the um, activism that emerged under the coalition government um, is how much... It tried to sort of deal with uh, the appeal of austerity by creating a left-wing version of austerity, rather than you know avoid you know this this kind of typical left thing of like we will always argue on the terms of our opponents. It's like yeah, good luck with that. Um, and I think that the, the, the lots of this, lots of the impulse behind something like Ken Loach's film The Spirit of Forty Five, which I which I think is quite a powerful piece of propaganda. Or Skip Kite's film *Will and Testament* on Tony Benn, which I think is absolutely atrocious. Um, that, 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 that they tried to kind of create this, um, you know, our, our own version of it. We will we will leap in, leap into the past and pull something out, and and it's an impulse that I find very attractive, and it's behind lots and lots and lots of what I've done. Um, but I, I I was rather unsure about the sort of literalism of it, and and I think this this comes out very well in. And the placards that I that, that probably the last the last march I, I went on was the on saving Lewisham Hospital, where everyone had the had a variant of the keep come and carry on poster on their placards. I guess it's this, this is a typical idea of, of detournement that you will use an image, right? and I think what, what what frequently happens, particularly in this case, is that the image uses you. So that's that's roughly the kind of conjuncture the book tries to tries to lay out. Okay, just a couple of. Super quick question. First of all, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm in a similar sort of quandary to you. In, in one sense, thanks for picking up on how irritating that poster is and, and everywhere. But also, you've got it in my house now. Um, by <laughs> embossing it into that book, I've tried really hard to keep it out. And, um, you've, you've done it by stealth. Um, so, I mean, one thing that I wanted to... I won't phrase this as a question because I think um, maybe we'll pick up on it later. But, but one thing that seemed to be upsetting point to recognise in your book was about um, a retraction of the state, really, that's, that's kind of propagated by this austerity idea of making do with less and to kind of blitz era. But at the same time, it kind of comes along with a, a reassertion of nationhood and nation-state, which I think you mentioned mm. a little bit in what you've just described. One line that I um, actually did pick up on in my sifting through the book was uh, a working-class upbringing as an alibi for life. Um, that you've written. And for a long time, I'm just wanting to bring it back selfishly to the built environment. For a long time, London was... One of the pleasures of London is that it did demonstrate this kind of very polyvocal um, urban texture that did kind of say that the working class has a place in the centre of London. Um, Do you think you can 
briefly maybe comment on the on the kind of current situation. Should we be nostalgic for Haygate, for example? Should we be nostalgic for the London that's being demolished as we speak right now? Um, I think the thing is with something like Haygate is it's actually very difficult to be nostalgic for it because it doesn't it, it doesn't have the same kind of evocative effect that a lot of the more to use a horrible phrase iconic council housing of the era does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no one at the 20th Century Society was trying to, was trying to list Haygate, and they're not trying to list the Aylesbury either. Um, you know, there's, the National Trust are not going to be doing tours around it, but they will do tours around, you know, Camden Council or Trellick Tower or Park Hill. Um, and the kind, of, the kind of brute functionality of something like Haygate or Aylesbury, I think, in a certain way, sort of inoculates it against that. So at the moment, you have this very, very weird thing where, on the one hand, the National Trust, Chair Simon Jenkins... Um, organises tours around brutalist buildings, which I think increasingly have an element of people shopping around. Um, and on the other hand, um, you know, on, 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 on the other hand, Cameron does this, specific, this bizarre kind of neo nineteen eighty speech about like you know the walkways of Broadwater Farm, which haven't existed now for about fifteen years. Um, and this dual thing seems to work very well. You know, Cameron for a while lived in North Kensington. I'm quite sure he knows quite how much a flat and trellic tower costs. But in order to demolish the kind of non-architecturally special, the non-nostalgia-inducing mm. um, elements of modernism, he, can kind of, he will kind of reach into this 1980s what do you book think, of rhetoric. What do you think? Cameron, the other day, would, was in... Um, when he went for that party at Murdoch's house, mm. and that's in a Dennis Lasden block. And do you <laughs> yes. think he walked in there and went, oh, we must bulldoze this, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Of course he didn't, you know? <laughs> anyway... And Douglas, I wanted to ask you uh, for almost a sci-fi question, which risks putting me in the jetpack nostalgic <laughs> route, really. But I was thinking about, um, and this is something I've maybe spoken to you about before, but it seems like in the past in science fiction, we're able to, when we think about the future, we're able to project forward really quite far. Um, you know, it's like the year 3000 or 2040 or what have you. And increasingly, I find in contemporary science fiction, it's almost like today or maybe a few hours from now, where the kind of contemplation of the future is increasingly contracted. Is that something you found um, in your research for the book, that there's a kind of contraction in how far we're able to project forward? Interestingly, what I thought was important for the book was to avoid, in a way, these far-sighted projections, which are valuable in many ways. But I was actually what I thought is most vital and um, powerful about how people felt then is how they envisaged the very near future, Mm. i.e. not how will we live in 50 or 100 years' time, more what will I be building in five years' time or what will I be commissioning, Uh, what will we be doing, you know, that kind of... I very specifically try to keep it to um, that kind of thinking and science fiction Mm. features very lightly... um, in it because I think that becomes a whole different story about about you know how science fiction plays out in terms of analysing the problems of your time yeah. uh, and the, and the ideas of your time through projecting it in a, in a different temporal location and so it was actually very very important to for me to 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 keep it to what was expected to be on site as it were or mm-hmm. how did be what kind of house did people think they'd be living in in ten years time rather than uh, visions of um, the, the, the further future but whether that means whether people were more able to think that way, I'm sure I mean, you'd have to check the sales figures for kind of far-sighted science fiction books I suppose for that but I meant more to do with the clues that the book might give us today because presumably what you're suggesting um, in picking up some of the projects mm. that you mentioned is that there's some clues to, to bring to thinking about the future today mm. and again I would assume that that would be a near future that you're talking about well yeah absolutely I think it's, it's, it's approaches if anything it, the, since the 1980s and, 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 and the, reject, the, sort of the, the anti-modern rejection period in, in architecture and, and urbanism, it's basically thought that we have, we have perfected the city. Okay. The city was perfected, whether that's in you know, 15th century Florence or whether it's um, in 19th century London, but we know what works. Like mm-hmm. just, just the other day, you, I, I was reading that Savile's report mm-hmm. about we should demolish all the housing estates and, and build them as streets and so on. And there's this kind of feeling 
that, you know, we know what cities are like and they're great and we've solved everything. But at the same time, there's an unbelievable housing crisis and an ecological crisis and we might, you know, everything might all be over in less than 50 years. So there's this kind of, at the moment we think, there's a, there's a sense that we, we don't need to change anything. We know what's right. It's obviously not right. Mm-hmm. And so looking, so what Last Futures tries to do is, see, is, is look at how, people felt in a time where they felt that they had to change. It Mm. wasn't an option. Things weren't perfected already. They were working towards something, which is not perfectibility. It's not about humans being being on the way to greatness. It's it's more just we can make make things better and it's actually our duty to do so. It's that ambition you were talking about. It's the ambition that's that's present in some of those projects that Mm. feels like somehow it's lacking today. Mm, Absolutely. Can we start with some questions from, from the audience? Hello, Douglas. Question for you. Um, so who do you look to at the moment when you look for some remnants of hope? <laughs> um, this, is, this is why I wrote about the past. Uh, <laughs> because it's a way of writing about now without writing about now, in a way. I think, as far as... I mean, in, the arch- in architectural culture right now, there's a lot of people who are ready, willing, and able to do great work, but the mechanisms by which it happens at the moment are as bad as they've been for a long time. So the commissioning process, the, the client, who the clients are, who, 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 who runs it. And there are people who, who... I mean, everyone's... Well, to a certain extent, most people are doing their best. But I think the problem is, the problem is far beyond agents of that type, uh, which is a shame, because when you're doing journalism and writing about buildings and so on, often you're like, well, this is, this is a, 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 you know, this is a beautiful example of a very terrible type of building, you know, <laughs> which is, <laughs> um, but, uh, so, it, the change has to happen, I think, on a kind of grindingly larger yeah. scale, unfortunately. Hi, thank you. Um, do you think in uh, rediscovering the kind of the, the loss of the future, which seems to be going on now with authors like yourself and, and other authors, that um, do you think there's a, there's a hope for? Do you think there's an emergent hope at the moment for getting back some of that future vision? For example, even Disney seemed to be getting in on it with uh, Tomorrowland, right? There's even a jetpack in that, so even even Disney seemed to be re- imaginatively reflecting that. Where? I, I think I, I think the the career of JJ Abrams could be connected <laughs> with with tomorrow. Night. You know the the, the the future permanently stopped in about 1978, um, and also the fact that it's it's better. There was this is a stupid tangent, sorry, but like I thought it was really fun. I'm not a big Star Wars fan, but I thought it was very very funny that um, George Lucas was quoted on on and strongly disliking the JJ Abrams Star Wars film because it was retro. And he was like, with the prequels, I tried to do something new with each one. It's like, yeah, you tried to do something new with each one and succeeded, but it was something new that no one wanted because it was terrible. And I think lots of that kind of Californian 70s generation, they're they're, they're still futurists. Their futurism is horrible. Mm. Um, And so, and and the main response, I think, from people of of, of our generation, I suspect J.J. Abrams probably is maybe slightly older than me, is to kind of stop the future there. You know, that, that's, that's where it stops. This beautiful image of the kind of... Um, and I, I, I don't think that's, that's particularly encouraging. What I, what, I, what I think it does show is a certain discontent. Um, I think there is more discontent with the status quo now than there has been at any time in, in my adult life, at least. And I think that's, that involves currently a sort of certain amount of groping around for like other things that, that, that have worked at other times. Um, whether or not that then leads on to anything else. I, I, I've been reading and rereading lately like the new books by Paul Mason and Alex Williamson and Xenachek's book, Inventing the Future. And I'm not entirely convinced by either book, but I thought it was kind of intriguing that there are people in the left now kind of going, right, this is what we want the future to be. And in Williams and Senechek's case, again, their future is a little bit J.J. Abrams-like. It's a little bit kind of like the space program and automation and, and you know, the sort of Khrushchev version of, version of the future. But anyway, the question is being posed, which it certainly hasn't been for the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, like, when I was right, I was in sort of nearly finished the book. Uh, and then Google 
So I was writing about, you know, about um, cities under domes and stuff like this as kind of symbols of, of, of both uh, industrial uh, pride and kind of um, ambition, but also as kind of ecological worry and so on. And then Google sort of go, ah, we've commissioned a new, a new headquarters. It's going to be a dome with, with, with pods in it. And, yes. and yay. It's, and, and you're and like, what? Like, Jesus. <laughs> I, I've just write a, written a sentence that goes, no one would ever try anything like that ever again. Um, <laughs> But of course, it's it's visually the same. But it's a, you know, you look at it closely, and it's like there's absolutely no uh, sense of of social change in in, in, in there at all. Right. Um, it's 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 an aesthetic, which is the problem when you write about the way things look. But right. Um, That's what I was getting. At. I mean, before we, you were alluding to the fact that the social and political mm. and the aesthetic are kind of intertwined. Whereas it seems like whether you're talking about biodomes or whether you're talking about this poster that was never produced it seems like the aesthetic becomes far more powerful than any kind of social message that was originally intended. Thank you for your, both your talks and your books, indeed, because uh, I, I teach a module in cultural memory uh, at a London university, which uh, is all about these, these issues, and your books will be very useful for my module. Um, I was thinking about nostalgia and um, my experience of telling students about the poster um, that, that you discuss the poster that was never real um, and go through the, with them, you know, this is a poster that was never um, around in London much, but now it's incredibly popular and I, I link that to the idea of the big society and we talk about um, many of the things that you raise in your book and at the same time they understand that, you know, they, they take that on board and they see there's a political thing going on but they still come to my office hours with... Uh, notebooks with this uh, on them, you know, and different... They still like it, and they still watch The Great British Bake Off, and they still um, like gardening and sewing, and they, they're, they're sucked in by it. Sorry, this is a bit of a long question, but I suppose what I'm coming to is um, that, yes, we can critically understand how these things may be problematic and ethical, political ways, and the past... Loving the past when it's illogical to do so is... Is strange, but but it, the seduction continues. They all love Downton Abbey. You know, they want to go back to a society which is based on a three-tier, a two-tier class system, and, and they don't really. But they still something still. So, how do you explain this pull of nostalgia, like either of you, and just sort of? There you go. No, I've I tried to at length of the book, and I don't know if I succeed. Um, and I've somehow managed never to watch The Great British Bake Off. And I think that may be a deep flaw in my analysis. Um, <laughs> but um, but the, um, I'm not immune to it. And that's the thing. I, I didn't want it to be a kind of, you know, book. I didn't want to write the cupcake fascism book. Um, you know, and, and, and I, um, I, I feel very, very drawn to these things, actually. I don't feel drawn to the Keep Come and Carry On poster, Particularly, I think I, I think from day one that was kind of a, ugh. but loads and loads and loads of this stuff I do, and actually one of the things majorly that I, that I feel quite drawn to is a lot of new London housing, um, which I think is of a far higher quality than anything that was built during the boom. It's exactly the same kind of housing for exactly the same kind of people, but the, but the you know simply the space standards, material quality, so on and so forth, you know, um, is much much better. It's partly due to the sort of weird nostalgia of the of the Boris administration. It's sort of a bit of an attempt to argue, uh, you know, possibly, hopefully, well, one way this would work is by the fact that it's sort of trying to argue myself out of my own nostalgia. It might help other people argue themselves out of their own nostalgia, but I don't know whether that would actually work or not. That's too big a question, sorry. <laughs> so when um, David Bowie died a few weeks ago, um, did you find yourselves, after the sort of imposed period of mourning, uh, interpreting his life and career through the lens of the books that you'd written? Not yet. Take that um, one, take I, that I, one. I, I've not got through the period of mourning. <laughs> um, I've, I think, once or twice listened to something else since then, but not, not much. So, um, no. Ask me in six months. <laughs> what do you think? Oh, it's a really... <clears throat> it's a great question. It's a great question. <laughs> can we, yeah, can I've we look been... at past visions of the future through Bowie's dress sense? Possibly? I'm sure you could. I think I'm too... I haven't got around to that yet. <laughs> I, I, I think it would be quite, quite worrying if you did. You know, Bowie is... 
on the one hand, a sort of you know great kind of figure of like you know post-war welfare state, this person from very very humble circumstances who ends up being this amazing thing, and you know and also a good way of bashing people like George Orwell, who I who, who I bash a certain amount of book and bashing the kind of blue labour thing in general of this sort of like which is all predicated on people people knowing their place and people liking being in their place and people hating anyone that's against them being in their place um, and then you know, eating croissants and being rootless cosmopolitans and so forth. So it's great if you have this bloke from a terrace house in Bromley who decides that he's like from outer space and then that he's Christopher Isherwood and then that he's like, you know, a Piero. And it, it, fantastic. Um, that, and that, that kind of possibility is, 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 is very much part, part of that era. And it's, but it's part of the post-austerity era. That's the thing. Because austerity and nostalgia stops everything and before pop happens. And that's one of the things that I think is interesting about it. Um, it's all pre-Beatles. Um, and, uh, you know, as soon as kind of like Americanism comes in, and, and, and uh, you know, that becomes problematic for it. You know, that, that for them, the 60s, for lots of this sort of stuff, the 60s is the decade of the radiophonic workshop. Um, and it's, it's a remarkably sort of whitened out aesthetic, actually, in lots of ways. I, I, I think, and it doesn't, it doesn't factor in someone like Bowie. It's almost a kind of like, um, because lots of it is predicated on arguing. I think they're right up to a point. It's predicated on arguing that actually post-war social democracy was pretty good. Um, and I agree, I think post-war social democracy was pretty good. And I think it was considerably better than what was built to replace it. Um, but for that generation, um, you know, for someone like my dad, you know, so who was very much on the left, you know, his, his idea of the, of, 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 of the future or of the present uh, in, the, in the early 19, in the 1970s was closer to, to Ziggy Stardust than it was to, like, you know, the Radiophonic Workshop and the BBC and the architecture of the London County Council. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's, in many ways, Bowie is a way that you would explain why this stuff didn't work at the time and, and how it failed to seduce at the time. But I've not really thought about this as much as I, as I should. I mean, I had a question that I wanted to ask you, Douglas, about social and spatial mobility, which is something that you kind of mentioned in your introduction. Mm. I mean, especially thinking about housing crisis, which has come up a few times, that all it seems that we're being encouraged to do is place our money in some kind of idea of permanence. Mm. And yet the promise of the visions of the past seem to be about mobility, whether physical or, or social or economic. I mean, why, where has that gone? Why are we looking to lock things down? It's one, of the, it's one of the trickier and, I guess, more conceptual issues that, is, that plays out through, through the book, which is um, the antici- the, uh, it's part of the, the technological change, I mm-hmm. suppose is an anticipation that mass production will change housing. And we were talking about the Haygate earlier. And, of course, this is an example of, of, of the kind of factory-built, mm. uh, barely-designed um, numbers-game housing of, of the era, which is going up everywhere, and they're building hundreds of thousands of them uh, in the late 60s. But then there's an ex- expectation that this would then lead to further development, so more technologies from, say, car manufacturing and things like that being brought in, and this would allow people to, say, move their house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this would bring in a certain nomadism to people's lives. So people saw the increase in white goods, in consumerism, they saw these things, and they said, well, what's, what's the next step? Is it going to be that you... You know, you buy a house like a fridge and you swap it and you can move around whenever you want and, and so on. And this is both frivolous, but it's also something that is taken quite serious at the time. And definitely people wrestle with that. And I think it's a massive issue because right now, you know, there, there is a kind of absolute sedentariness implied um, in the notion of housing, which affects all of us in anyone who lives in London and so on. And Last so forth. time I saw a mobile home, it was the RV in, in uh, Breaking Bad. It wasn't really <laughs> something desirable that you wanted. There's a sense. There's a sense now, and this is the question, there's a sense now that, um, I mean, nomad, nomadism is really sexy in, the, in that period. Like, of, It plays out in lots of kind of the wilder fringes of political and, and philosophical theory and so on and so forth. Um, but there's a sense that comes later that this is not something that people ever want. 
human beings do not want this. They want to dwell, and they want to be in the, you know, they want to have the, the one place. And I think that this is a very tricky question, um, because if that's, the, if that's true, then it's very, difficult for, uh, it's very difficult for us as humans to get beyond housing crises and these kind of sure. endless problems of, of sedentariness. Um, and so looking at that period and, and attempts that were made to ephemeralise people's way of life is, is telling. Whether it works or not, it's, it's absolutely unclear. Mm. It was defeated that time. Mm -hmm. Would it ever come back? Who knows? Well, we have like Airbnb where we're able to kind of well, there's a question, in, isn't it? Yeah. In, in people's homes, but not the physical architecture mm. seems to be what you invest your kind of permanent mm -hmm. hope in. Let's yeah. say a lot of a lot of energy was expended in in that period in researching and proposing ways in which housing could be made less permanent, mm. and it all came to effectively nothing. Mm. Uh, or, but will that always be the case? My question was kind of posed earlier, but I'd like to repose it. Um, to what extent, it's quite simple, to what extent does architecture in the general sense of urban planning as well sort of prefigure society and social relations? Um, to try and sort of maybe specify a little bit more, I'm quite interested in the 1980s, the kind of policies of defensible space theory, which to me seem in a way like the kind of last dying embers of modernism in the sense that to some extent the kind of crime reduction through cul-de-sac development does still sort of prem is premised around the belief that architecture and planning can shape how society is organized and then I in my view from the kind of scheme of architectural history that I've developed I believe that uh, after that it seems that uh, modernism in the most general sense kind of did seem to die out, at least in Europe, as far as I can tell. Um, I, I go through it, and probably... I've been, I've been criticised for focusing on something so ridiculous. But, I mean... It's very influential. Very, Maybe just spell it out super, super briefly. Right. Um, super briefly, Alice Coleman's this uh, geographer at King's College London who, with her department, go, go around housing estates looking for shit uh, in the mid-'80s and then claiming that that leads that the prevalence of litter and other such signs, because they can't actually get the data. So they, they go around uh, and they look for litter and shit in housing estates and then claim that that is the source of social breakdown. Yeah, one-parent families as well. Oh, How yeah. many one-parent families in the brutalist block? Well, the brutalist block is why there's one-parent families, do you see? And at the time, the methodology is massively criticised, and yet it's got, it gets the ear of, of government. And she and Coleman's department end up getting invited to like remake lots of housing estates by putting pitched roofs on the top and knocking down the walkways and so on. And this somehow makes people more civilised. This is the idea. But, I mean, that's the thing. And, and, and it goes back to, to what I was saying a, a minute ago about in the 60s, uh, you've got the, 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 the sort of traffic in towns and things like that. People are saying, well... We need, to, we need to remake the city. It's absolutely... We have to do it. The Victorians did it in just a few decades. We need to do it again because otherwise we'll um, run out of space and everyone will get killed by cars and the cars won't even be moving either. Um, and so they develop all these ideas about three-dimensional cities, about walkways, about, mm -hmm. about ways of re uh, rearranging houses to be more dense and blah, 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 blah. And then the 80s come along and they say, nah, none of that works. It was all fine. Um, it, you know, Let's go back. Yeah, let's let's just absolutely pretend none of this happened. Uh, and but well, the typology that results is is new. That's the thing, though. Um, you know that that the, if you go around, probably the most comprehensively Colmanized city in the country um, would be either Liverpool or Belfast. And in Belfast, it happens because that's a, a useful way of keeping people apart from each other, and having only one door in and out of the different communities. Um, but the, um, the Liverpool example, what they do when they, rather than rebuilding the old terraces and the kind of you know, block system, is, is they build shitloads of cul-de-sacs all, all over Liverpool. Um, and that, that's much more the model. So it's sort of the 19th century, it actually does incorporate the car. Um, it just incorporates the car in a much, much less interesting way. It incorporates the car by creating cul-de-sacs mm. and creating lots and lots of parking space in the front of your house. Um, but the idea that the, that the car would necessitate this, this three-dimensional city just totally goes. And, uh, you know, it's sort of... 
aside from the social Darwinism aspect of, of defensible space, which is pretty ugly, um, it's also does tend to make cities very, very, very boring. And I think one of the reasons why Alice Common fell out of favour so much and why these ideas fell out of favour so much in the kind of era of the urban task force and the return of the middle class to the cities is precisely that. It's precisely because middle class people, and particularly young middle class people, didn't want to live in these places. They didn't want to live in Barrett homes. Um, frequently their parents will have lived in Barrett homes and they won't have wanted to live there. They want to live in Hackney. And we, and we now face the consequences. Um, hi. I wanted to talk about kind of darker dark ideas of the future because obviously um, I suppose for a lot of people when we think about the future now you think about terrorism, war, ecological catastrophe and these things seem, if not inevitable, at least that there is no easy solution, there's no visible solution. But the era that you're talking about, both of you in fact, is also an era in which for the first time humanity became able to destroy the world, the nuclear threat <coughs> and kind of the possibility of you know a total cataclysm. And that kind of dark side of technology is reflected quite often in things like, I don't know, the, the man in the white suit. Um, or to quote Mad Men, some people see a rocket, they start building a bomb shelter. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that a bit, the sort of that dark side. And let's just take this one uh, forward. This gentleman here, stick your hand right up. Yeah, good. Uh, I guess this is a question for Owen, really. Like, I thought uh, all the examples that you showed of the um, uh, Keep Calm, Carry On poster were really interesting um, and your revulsion for the first one. But I was, guess I was interested, and I'm, I haven't read the book yet, so I'm sorry if you answer this in like the first page or something, um, what version of it you thought, oh, my God, I have to write about this now? Because I remember seeing the original at Barter Books in Northumberland thinking, oh, this is innocuous enough, it's fine, it's in a bookshop. But the point I thought that this is evil incarnate was... Um, when someone on Facebook posted, keep calm and listen to Nickelback. And I thought, <laughs> the two just don't go together. So I guess, I guess it was that, what, tip, what was the tipping point for you, really? Jesus Christ. Um, Do you want to take that one and then Douglas maybe take the first one? Yeah, that, that's, that's mortifying. Um, <laughs> the, um, the answer to that question is... I think it was, I can't remember if it was winter 2008, I think it was, like the kind of December 2008, January 2009, when there, was like, when there were very heavy snows. Um, and I was walking around Blackheath, um, and the, because of the snow, the entire British transport network had, had, had kind of seized up. Um, and I, in about half the windows, I exaggerate, but in a lot of windows in Blackheath of like nice big span houses and nice big, nice big Georgian houses was this poster saying keep calm and carry on. Um, like keep calm because, you know, a, a privatised train system can't cope with some snow. Um, and then a few months after that there was a tube strike and then the tube strike similarly, like this image was ubiquitous. Like, you know, as we like battle on of us to have lip through a one day bloody tube strike which let's compare that to the Blitz. Let's compare that to Nazis <laughs> throwing bombs on us. Um, so that was the moment where I kind of was like, ah, this, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. So that's the answer to the question. <laughs> well, just, just on, on that subject, someone, um, someone we both, a mutual friend of ours, once made them a mock-up of the... Keep, very early on in the Keep Calm and Carry On posters life, he made a mock-up that just said, class war and nothing else. <laughs> so he was, he was extremely prescient. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, that, that was Joel Anderson. Ah, yeah, yeah. of course. Um, but, um, but darkness. No, I mean, there's, there's a lot of darkness in, in, in the book. And what's telling, I think, that gets missed out... Uh, that gets missed out when you put everything in the utopian box um, is that people were... Like, a lot of these visions were based on dread. Um, and I go into a fair bit of detail on things like limits to growth, which is, what, a book? I mean... It's, it's incredible. I mean, uh, just this sense of, you know... When is that? What, limits to growth is 72. Mm -hmm. And it, it basically says, you know, we can't have compound growth and it'll kill us all. And they create... And they're using this, what, is now a ridiculously rudimentary computer, but they use the best computer they've got at the time to try and work out, can we have... Can, can, can resources last? Yeah. And the computer just keeps killing everyone. Uh, and they keep printing these graphs where they change the inputs to try and save the world, and it keeps failing, you know? And, like, so partly, it's partly comic in a kind of 
well, we made it another 50 years. But at the same time, it's, um, it's not. Uh, but what I think is important is back then, this was on people's minds mm. in a way that... What happened... Like, the, the very earliest ecological design is, is often big solutions. Now, you don't have to be... You don't have to say, oh, the, the most technological is the best technological solution or whatever. But what happens by the end of the 70s is that, is that um, ecological architecture in particular is a windmill on, on the top of your house or it's, it's building a passive solar um, hut in the woods or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this tiny thing because mm-hmm. there's another oil boom on and nobody wants to hear about it. Um, so I think one of the most valuable things is that... Um, uh, I love playing this. I love playing this video uh, of uh, Kenneth Clark's civilization, uh, right at the end when he's told the history of the world, and he shows the atomic bomb and he says, "Oh, everything's we're all doomed," um, and then he goes, "Ah, but no, here I am at the University of East Anglia. Uh, um, look at these students; they're really bright. The future's maybe not so bad. We've got brutalist architecture and bright students. You know, this is this is." I think something we, it's very easy to miss about that period that it wasn't both happy clappy kind of uh-huh. um, everything's going to be great. It was actually a lot of these ambitions were based on people who fought in the war, had organised things during the war, uh, had made things happen and thought that it was possible to do stuff. One of the things that comes out a lot in your book though is like how pastoral a lot of these versions were. You ever go to the University of East Anglia and in front of those brutalist cigarettes are rabbits like bouncing around, like just ra- dozens and dozens. Of, of bunnies in front of a lake. It's an incredibly pastoral place. And it's funny that... And lots of the kind of critique of it from, like, people like Jane Jacobs is because of that pastoralism. Like, she has some line somewhere about, like, the green spaces in the field of use being no use for anything other than Christopher Robin going hippity-hoppity. Um, you know, that, that, that they actually have, the, have this kind of, like, gritty urban vision against this sort of, you know, uh, form of unification between technology and nature. They're actually... Weirdly, given they're later kind of seen as, as environmentalist ideas, they're, they're, they're quite kind of like, you know, let's go back to, like, pollution and, like, you know, let's have factories next to houses, says Jane Jacobs. Seriously. Let's not have factories in a factory zone. Let's have them next to the houses. Because anyone, as anyone, you know, who knows the history of 19th century urbanism can tell you, that's a great idea. And it doesn't <laughs> involve huge quantities of industrial accidents at all. And people dying from all sorts of... Anyway. <laughs> Thanks very much. Would you mind thanking our guests for for their books? Thank you.